You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Letter to the Colossians. Uh, this morning we're beginning a new series. At the same time, we also want to dismiss our middle school class. If there's any middle schoolers here with us today, we encourage you to join that class. It meets right down the stairs here to my right, to your left. Uh, this morning we're beginning a new series. It's called Crux. And uh, in this series, we're going to be studying through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And one of the things we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through uh, entire books of the Bible. We go through them verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we feel that that is a way that we can get the whole message of an entire book of the Bible and we can let God speak to us through it and we can get it in its full context. Last week we finished our study of the Philippians and quite likely our next study we're going to be going back to the Old Testament. So you can look forward to that. Uh, But for this next couple weeks we're going to be studying through Colossians. It's a relatively small book but it is one of the richest and it is one of the, theologically one of the most important books in the Bible. So I'm excited about this and I hope that you are too. Let's go ahead and pray as we open God's word. Lord God we thank you that you are a God who reaches out to us. You're a God who loves us. You're a God who seeks after us and who, who speaks to us. Lord, you are a God who wants to form our hearts and change us from the inside out. And Lord, this morning we avail ourselves to you, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Lord, we pray that that transforming power of your word would take uh, an active role in our lives today. Lord, may we have hearts that are good soil to receive the seed of your word. And Lord, may you water those seeds this morning as we study your truth, as you speak to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that it would produce much fruit in our lives for your glory, for our good, for the good of those around us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this series is Crux, and the dictionary defines the word crux as the decisive or most important point at issue. The decisive or most important point at issue, the crux of a matter, we say, is the central point. It is the heart. It is the bottom line. But here's what's interesting. The word crux is actually simply the Latin word for cross. Did you know that? And that's uh, interesting, isn't it? That the word we use for the decisive, the most important point, the central issue, the bottom line, literally means the cross. And as Christians, that is exactly what we believe, that the central issue of all of history, of our lives personally, of the world in general, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And for each and every person, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that is the central moment in all of history. The decisive moment, the crux of all of history, the crux of our lives individually, the crux of our eternal destiny is the cross of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what he did for you on Calvary's cross. And it is this message of the cross which is at the center of this book called Colossians, which we turn our attention to now. And in this book, we are setting our gaze upon Jesus, fully upon Jesus, focusing on who he is, what he came to do, and what his death on the cross means for us in every area and aspect of our lives. The title of today's message is, A Bottomless Well. Because here in the opening verses of this first chapter, the first thing we see is that the message of the cross, the gospel, 
is a bottomless well which we can draw upon always for everything we need, for everything that afflicts our souls. Here in this section, here's what we're going to see about the cross. The cross is the source of true joy. The cross is the source of true transformation. And the cross is the source of true deliverance. The source of true joy, the source of true transformation, and the source of true deliverance. Please read with me. Follow along in your Bibles, or if some of you use a Bible app on your phone, we have live notes in the YouVersion Bible app. We encourage you to follow along in there. Uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you. And peace from God our Father. So, the book of Colossians, like many of the other books in the New Testament, is a letter. It is a letter which was written by Paul the Apostle to the Christians who lived in the city of Colossae. Now, Paul wrote this letter during his imprisonment in Rome. This is something we've talked a lot about over the past several weeks and actually months because we've, we studied the book of Acts and at the end of Acts we saw Paul end up in prison and then beyond that we saw uh, in Philippians that Paul was in prison writing this letter. So Paul is in prison writing this letter. It is one of the four letters that he wrote during his Roman imprisonment. We call these the prison epistles and there are four of them, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul wrote this letter uh, because the leader of the church in Colossae a man named Epaphras, who's mentioned many times in this letter, had come to visit Paul there in Rome where he was being held. Now what's interesting and unique about Colossae and the church there is that Paul had never been to Colossae. He did not know, he'd never met these people who he was writing this letter to. And so, you know, we're... we're used to thinking of Paul the missionary and how he started churches and then he would write letters to these churches. But interestingly, in this case, it wasn't Paul who started the church in Colossae. It was this man, Epaphras, the man who came to visit Paul. He was the pastor of that church and he was the man who, who started the church. Now, Colossae, interestingly, is also, it's not mentioned in the book of Acts. It was located near the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was located in the Roman province of Asia, or what we would call Asia Minor, which means it was in southwestern Turkey, kind of there along the, uh, the, the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, so that southwestern part of Turkey. We call Turkey Asia Minor. They called that the Roman province of Asia. And Colossae was in that province. The chief city of that province was Ephesus. And we read in Acts chapter 19 that Paul spent three years in Ephesus preaching the gospel. He started a church. And for two of those years, he held daily meetings. It was almost kind of like a, a Bible school or even like these were lectures that he would hold in a place called the School of Tyrannus. And for a few hours every day during the siesta time, Paul would teach about Jesus. Whoever came, he would discuss with them, he would preach to them, he would teach them from the Bible. Whoever was, came and he would talk to them about Jesus. And we read there in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that as a result of Paul's preaching and teaching there in Ephesus, doing this every day, teaching in the school of Tyrannus, we read this, that all of the area in Asia, which is western Turkey, all the people there heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, how, think about that. How is that possible that all of the people of this particular province heard the word of the Lord during Paul's time preaching in Ephesus? 
Well, what it would seem happened is not that everybody came to Paul, but that some people came to Paul and they became Christians and they were sitting under this teaching every day for hours and they were being equipped, they were being trained to go out and take that message to other people, to the surrounding areas. And Epaphras was one of those guys. In chapter 4 of Colossians, Paul mentions that Epaphras was a native of the city of Colossae. This was his hometown. We also read here in chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7, that Epaphras had brought the message of the gospel to the city of Colossae. He was the one who brought the message of Jesus to these people. Later on, also in chapter 4, Paul mentions that Epaphras not only started the church in Colossae, but he also started two other churches in adjacent cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, the reason Paul wrote this letter, the, the content of the letter, is addressing something which is called the Colossian heresy. Colossian heresy was unique. It was different than some of the other heresies at the time, like you might have heard of Gnosticism or the Judaizers. The Colossian heresy was unique, and it's something we're going to talk about more in weeks to come. So if you want to find out what that is, got to come back. But it was a particular kind of bad teaching which was spreading throughout the church in Colossae, which had kind of taken root. And apparently, Epaphras, the pastor of this church, had come to meet with Paul, probably to visit him as a friend, but also to kind of discuss with him and get counsel about what to do about this teaching that was becoming popular in his church and in his town. He's asking Paul for advice. And so in response to that, Paul now writes this letter to address this errant doctrine, this errant teaching that is going around in Colossae because of his, Paul's able to address that because of his authority as an apostle. In the late 1800s, there was a young man who was studying at Cambridge University in England. His name was Charles T. Studd. And he was also a star athlete. In fact, he became a professional athlete. Uh, he played cricket for the British national team. And he had a bright future ahead of him in sports. He also had a bright future ahead of him in a professional career, having graduated from Cambridge University at a time when having a university degree was a rare thing and it made you an elite uh, person. But one day, this man, Charles T. Studd, his life changed because he went to a meeting and at that meeting there was, there was an American there, an American pastor by the name of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody was speaking about Jesus and there at that meeting, Charles Studd, even though he had always considered himself a Christian, even though he had grown up going to church, he said later on that it was at that meeting, it was at that moment that he understood the gospel for the first time in his life. Can you imagine that? Going to church for years, having always considered yourself a Christian, and then going to a meeting, hearing the gospel and saying, oh my word, I don't think I've ever really took hold of the gospel. I don't think I've ever really understood the gospel until now. And shortly thereafter, after this moment, when he felt that he really understood the gospel for the first time in his life, at being 20-something years old, Shortly thereafter, he surprised many people by giving up his career in professional sports and leaving the comforts of England and a career which surely would have made him a lot of money. And he left all of it to go to China as a missionary. And after a few years in China, he went to Africa, to what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he established there a missionary organization that exists to this day that did work and does work in India, South America, and Africa. And Charles T. Studd, also known as C.T. Studd, he wrote a famous poem which you might have heard a few lines of before. It's called Only One Life. And this is what it says. This is, my, this is one stanza, but it's my personal favorite. He says this. One li only one life, t'will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. When Charles Studd understood the gospel, it gave him a new perspective on life. It changed his values, it changed his desires, and it filled him with a joy, a joy that motivated him to live his life differently, to live his life with a completely different purpose and and direction. The direction now was to pour out his life in service to God and in service to others. And let me tell you this, you don't have to move halfway across the world to do that to pour out your life in service to God and service to others. Wherever you're at, whatever stage of life you're at, whatever your job or occupation, let me tell you, you can choose to do it for the glory of God and for the service of others. This was Paul's attitude as well. It was certainly Epaphras' attitude, and it was motivated by joy, nothing less than joy from coming to understand the hope of the gospel. And that brings us to our first point today, and that is this, that the gospel is the source of true joy. The gospel is the source of true joy. Charles Studd, this man I've been talking about, he grew up going to church, but it was only as an adult while at that meeting that he says that he first truly understood the gospel for the first time. This was the first time he really got it. He he really understood the depth of his sinfulness. He really understood how desperately lost he was and how much he needed a savior. And for the first time in his life, he understood the breadth of what God had done for him by sending Jesus. For the first time in his life, he really understood the depth of God's love for him expressed through Jesus. And as a result, his life was changed. He was filled with a sense of humility. He was filled at the same time with a sense of confidence and with an overwhelming sense of joy. Let me ask you, how, how about you? Have you had that moment in your life, that aha moment where, where for the first time, whether you'd been coming to church for a long time or not, but for the first time you say, you know what, it's like I really understood the gospel for, for the first time. I've had a few of those moments in my life. But what it means is this. It means this, that it's possible for a person to go to church for years and yet not really understand the gospel and yet not really get the gospel So the question is, how do you know if you've really got it? How do you know if you've really understood it in fullness? Well, let me give you one test that might might help hash things out. Let me ask you this. When you think of Christianity, what do you think of? Do you think of Christianity as a a hard task? Do you think of Christianity as a, uh, a round of duties or disciplines? Do you think of Christianity in negative terms as a as a grind of moral responsibility? Let me tell you this, if that's what you think when you think of Christianity, it shows that you don't really get it. You don't really understand. You don't really understand the very essence, the very core of what Christianity is about because you know what? The word gospel, you know what it is? It is a Greek compound word and you know what it means? It means a joyous proclamation. The angel put it this way when they, when they preached the gospel to the shepherds. You remember when Jesus arrived, he said, I bring you good news of great joy. That is what the word gospel means. Literally, it is news that brings great joy. And what is that news? It is the news of what God has done for you in order that God could accept you in Christ. It is not the message of what you need to do for God. It is the message of what God has done for you because of his love for you in order to save you through Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is that all of us have sinned. We have all fallen short. And therefore, we deserve God's judgment. But yet God, because of his great love for us, made a way for us to be saved. He sent us Jesus 
to die in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled to him both now and forever. And in verse 5, Paul calls the gospel, he says, here's what the gospel is. It is the word of truth. He says that in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1 here. And what that means is this. The gospel is a body of content which claims to be true and which claims to be historical fact. And either it is or it isn't. Do you know that Christianity is the only major faith which is based on historical claims? Historical events, not on vague, mystical, esoteric claims, but on historical events which either happened or didn't happen. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. You know this about Christianity. Christianity is the only major faith which claims that your right standing with God, your spiritual ascendancy, so to say, is not something that you can earn or merit by good works. It's not a merit system. It says that it's something that is only freely given to you and freely received from God. All other faiths in the world work on the merit system. But Christianity is unique in this way. Christianity is not about what you must do for God. It's about what God has done for you in Christ. The message of grace sets Christianity apart from every other major religion in the world. And it is good news what Jesus has done for us. It brings great joy when you really understand the seriousness of your plight and the depth of God's love for you shown in what Jesus did for you on the cross. When you really understand that, you don't see Christianity as a grind or negativity, but it fills your heart with joy and with elation. Here's what the gospel means. Go with me again to verse 2. He says, To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, to be in Christ. See, this is the core of the message of the gospel. It means to be in Christ. There are some of you here today, and you consumed some pretty terrible stuff before you came in here this morning. Some of you had egg McMuffins. Some of you had donuts, breakfast burritos with chorizo. You had coffee. That's terrible stuff. You, you might even say that stuff is so bad, it's sinfully bad, right? Like carbs, caffeine, nitrates, that stuff's super bad for you, even sinfully bad. But now I look at you now, and you know what? I don't see those things which you consumed before you came in here. All I see when I look at you are your beautiful faces looking right back at me because all of those bad things that are in you, that's exactly where they are. They're in you. And when I look at you, I don't see those things. I only see you. And and the same way, the message of the gospel is that in Jesus, Jesus took our place before God the Father. And we, along with all of our misdeeds, along with all of our mistakes, all of our sins, all of our errors, all of our wrong intentions and unholy thoughts, all of us, with all of our junk, we are hidden in Christ. And when God, the righteous judge of all the earth, looks at you, he doesn't see those things. He doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see the imperfection. He sees Jesus in his glory, in his perfection, in his righteousness, because you are hidden in him positionally. That's the good news of the gospel, that you are in Christ, having put your faith in him. Jesus was judged for your sins, and now you stand righteous, not on your own accord, but in him. When you really understand that, it fills your heart with hope and with joy. Let's read this text and then talk a little bit more about that. Starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, 
you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Here's the thing about joy. Joy increases by being shared. Joy increases by being shared. C.S. Lewis writes about this when he writes about the Psalms. He talks about that joy increases, enjoyment and joy itself increases in this way, by being shared. That's why when you discover something really good, something that you love, you want to share it, right? That's why we have all these social media sites that are, you know, proliferate because people find something good and they want to share it. They want to share it with the world. They want to share it with their friends. They want other people to enjoy the thing that they enjoyed, to see the thing that they saw. Uh, a friend of mine took me to a concert this last week at Red Rocks, and he kept telling me, you know, you have to hear this band. You have to see this show. Now, you might wonder, now, why should this guy care if I like this band? I mean, why isn't it enough for him that he likes the band? He has it. It's his thing. Why does he have to bring me into it? Isn't it enough for him just to know how great their show is? Why does he want so badly for me to be part of that? Here's why. Because his joy is increased by sharing it with someone else. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Joy increases by being shared. Enjoyment is consummated by being shared. He says that's why it's so frustrating when you hear a good joke and you have no one to tell it to. He says that's why it's so disappointing when you, you know, come up and you see a beautiful mountain vista in the unexpected grandeur, but you have no one to share that experience with. He says joy is consummated. Joy increases by being shared. My eight-year-old son He's, he's really into a lot of things, and most of them are, are, don't interest me at all. Like right now, he's into Minecraft, and he always wants to tell me about Minecraft. And, and if I let him, he would go on for hours and hours explaining to me the intricacy of uh, red brick construction and, you know, diamond swords and whatever else, like how to defeat the ender dragon. And for a while, I was like, doesn't he understand? Why can't he understand that I am not interested in hearing about this, that I don't care? Like, I don't care about the ender dragon. I don't want to hear about this. But here's what I realized. I realized that for him to tell me about it actually fulfills his enjoyment of it. His enjoyment of it is incomplete until he shares it with someone. And the reason he wants to share it with me is because he loves me and he wants his joy to increase by sharing it with me. And so even though I'm not interested, see, I've realized that this is something I can do for his sake. I can let him tell me about it because by doing that, I allow his joy to increase. See, the gospel is the source of true and ultimate joy. But that joy is incomplete until you express it, until you share it, until you celebrate it. And, and that is what drives a man like Charles T. Studd to give up a career in professional sports, to become a missionary. It's what causes him to say, Oh, how happy I will be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. It's what causes Epaphras to go out and to plant not one but three churches. That's a lot of work. When I lived in Hungary, there were two years when I pastored two churches at the same time. And let me tell you, it's a lot of work. Epaphras didn't have two churches. He had three. Now, some people might have said, hey, man, that's a little overkill, right? Like, you're going to burn out. Like, you, you don't have to do all that. Like, God's sovereign. He's going to get his work done. Even if you were doing something else, just chill, man. And Epaphras would say, 
look, I know that I don't have to. Trust me, I know that. I want to. It increases my joy to share it with others. There's no, others. There's nothing that brings me greater joy. See, when we worship together as God's people, when we gather together and worship as a group, our joy increases because we're sharing the joy that we have in the gospel together. We're celebrating it together. We're expressing it together. Paul the Apostle, he felt this way. It's what drove him around the world. The joy that I have because of the gospel increases. It is consummated, not when I keep it to myself, but when I share it with other people. In fact, it even says in the, in the book of Hebrews about Jesus, it says that it was for the joy. It was because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised its shame. That was what motivated him. There was this joy that was set before him that drove him to do what he did, to bear the, the spiritual horrors and the physical pain of the cross. Now, what was that joy that motivated Jesus to do this? Here's what it was. It was the prospect. It was the prospect of you being redeemed. You getting to enter into the joy which he has had, which he has experienced from eternity past in heaven and with the Father. You see, Jesus has known joy in heaven and in relationship with the Father and the Spirit together for eternity. And the only way to increase that joy, to make it greater, is to share it with, with others and to bring us into it. And so it was for the sake of that joy that Jesus endured the horrors of the cross. If you think, that, uh, if you think of Christianity primarily as a hard task, as a bummer, as a grind, as a set of disciplines and responsibilities that are a heavy burden, let me tell you this, you have not really understood the gospel because the gospel is good news that brings great joy. The gospel is the source of true joy. It brings us to our second point, and that is this. The gospel is the source of true transformation. It says in verse 6, he says that amongst them, the, the Throughout the world, the gospel has been going out and bearing fruit. What that tells us is that there's a power to the gospel. There's a power to it. And he goes on in verse 9 to say this. So from the first day we heard, we have not ceased praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all, all endurance and patience with joy. When he says this, he says, you ought to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is a phrase that's actually repeated throughout the New Testament. And it always means this. It always means, look at what God has done for you. And now, let your life be shaped by it. Let the way that you live be shaped by what he has done for you. It doesn't mean if you walk worthy enough, then God will love you, God will accept you, God will bless you. Not at all. What it means is because of what he's done, now walk in response, live in response to what he has done for you. But, but what does that mean? What does that even look like to live, in a, to live a life worthy of the Lord? Here's what it means. He tells us it means bearing fruit. He says this. He says, I want you to bear fruit in every good work. Jesus said something similar. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus talks about abiding in him, and he says, this is how you bring glory to your Father who's in heaven, to the Heavenly Father. Here's how. By bearing much fruit. When Paul talks about bearing fruit, when Jesus talks about bearing fruit, 
What they're talking about is an internal revolution which produces external results. An internal revolution which produces external results. Now think about it. Uh, I heard this. It's like a, you've seen these websites that have dad jokes on them? I love these websites. They're like my favorite. There's one called like uh, Good One Dad. Anyway, uh, you know how many apples grow on a tree? All of them. That's the joke, all right? So uh, do apples, let me ask you this. Do apple trees have a hard time making apples? Have you ever walked near an apple tree and heard that apple tree grunting and straining to produce apples? Of course not. Apple trees don't have a hard time producing apples. It comes absolutely naturally to them. But if I wanted to produce apples, it would be really hard, right? Like I'd be grunting, I'd be exerting myself, I'd be struggling trying to do that. But in the end, no matter how hard I push and exert myself, I'm not going to produce any apples. In order for me to grow apples, I would fundamentally have to change who I am. Like my DNA would have to change. I would have to become something completely different in the most fundamental part of who I am. I would have to become an apple tree. And so when Jesus talks about bearing fruit in John chapter 15, and he says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you will bear much fruit. And when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit in these verses refers to the external results that are the result of an internal revolution, a change that has taken place on the inside. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 15. He says, out of the heart... Out of the heart the mouth speaks, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false witness, slander. They come out of the heart. And he says that is what defiles a person. What's going on on the inside comes out. What he's saying is that our outward actions are the result of our inner condition. And what that means is that no amount of external regulation or rules can change a person's heart. You can't change a person's heart from the outside in. It has to happen on the inside and then it comes out. You know, with all the violence going on in our society right now, it's important to remember that we can and we should set up laws and regulations and put these things in place and carry them out wherever possible. But we must know that no amount of laws and rules can change the human heart. Only God can do that. You know, the first year I was in Hungary... Uh, there was this young man I met. His name was Miklos. And uh, he came to one of our outreaches and, and I shared the gospel with him. This guy had never heard the gospel before in his entire life. His parents were atheists and he knew almost nothing about Jesus. He had never heard about Jesus. Uh, he was 20-something at the time. And I told him about Jesus and how I had become a Christian and what God had done in my life. And he told me at the end of this, he said, you know what, I want that. What you have, I want that. I want to become a Christian. And so we prayed together. And this young man started coming to our church there in Hungary. And he was super enthusiastic, you know, because everything was completely new to him. Like he was blown away every time we'd tell him something or every song that came. And, you know, he was so excited. Everything was so new. But after a few months, all of a sudden, he just disappeared completely from church. And so I reached out to him. I got in touch with him and we talked. And, and here's what he told me. Here's what happened. As he was coming to church, a lot of people, including myself, had started telling him what he had to do now that he was a Christian. They told him, hey, you know, if you're a Christian now, well, you got to break up with your girlfriend because she's not a Christian and you can't go out clubbing anymore and you're not drinking, are you? And what kind of music are you listening to? Did you read your Bible today? Why weren't you at church last week? And he told me, you know what? I loved, I loved 
the gospel that you shared with me. It was just all the rules. I didn't know about him when I, when I got into it. I, it's just all the rules that I couldn't handle. I didn't know about those rules beforehand. And I guess I just didn't know what I was getting myself into. Now you might look at that and you might say, and, and many people did at this time, you might say, well, that's just that guy's problem. You know, that's his problem. If he doesn't want to obey God, if he doesn't want to do what the Bible says, that's his problem, then fine, go away. But over the years, I've looked back at this and I've thought about Miklo Shalat and I can't help but think that this was a failure on our part as a church because here's why. See, we knew that he needed the gospel in order to become a Christian. But when it came to helping him grow as a Christian, we didn't give him the gospel. We gave him the law, didn't we? Now, let me ask you, were those things that we told him to do or not do, were they not good biblical principles? Absolutely, they were good biblical principles. So what's the problem then? The problem was that we only targeted the symptom. We didn't target the cause of that symptom. See, we only focused on changing his behavior. We only gave him rules when we should have been focusing on his heart and giving him the gospel, the one thing that has the power to change his heart. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said to the Galatians, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? You see, the gospel is not the message of what you must do in order to be accepted by God. It is the news of what God has done for you in Christ, how he has accepted you because of the cross. That's why you'll notice in verse 12, Paul talks about what they have in Christ as an inheritance. I'll read that to you, verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. See, an inheritance is different than a wage, isn't it? A wage is something that you work for, something that you earn through your labor. A wage is something that you earn by working for it, but an inheritance is not something you earn. It's something which is given to you. It's gifted to you. And I think that what happened to Miklos uh, was actually something that, that's pretty common. And that's this, that we as Christians know that people need the gospel, they need the message of God's grace in order to be saved, in order to come into God's kingdom. In order, we know that we're not saved by our own works. But once people become Christians, that's where we sometimes drop the ball. Once they become Christians, instead of continuing to give them the gospel, now we give them the law. We give them a list a mile long of all the things that they need to do. Read your Bible every day. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't go out with girls who do. You're a Christian now. Don't look at that. Don't go there. Don't, you know, watch that. These are some, there's some pretty high expectations. Get it in gear now. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is not the result. The end result, what we're trying to get at, is absolutely good. The end result that we're aiming for is holiness which is a good thing. See, the problem is the motivation, the method of how we get people there. See, rules and laws, they might suppress behavior, they might uh, coerce behavior, but they don't address the issue which is at the root of what's coming out of your life, of the symptoms of your life, which is the heart. The root issue is the heart. The point of all of this talk about fruit is this. Fruit is the external result of an internal revolution. It, it's that you are tra you've been transformed inwardly, and when that happens, your behavior changes outwardly, and it, it will, inevitably. But if you just try to suppress behavior, if you just try to coerce behavior, then there's no real change happening. There's no real growth that has taken place in a person. It has to happen on the inside. 
And that's why the gospel is the source, the only true source of real transformation. And that's why the gospel isn't just what you need in order to become a Christian. It's also what you need in order to grow as a Christian. See, the message of the cross speaks to all of our lives, from from our relationships to others, to the way that we view ourselves, to the way that we work, and the way that we spend money. Throughout Paul's letters, And in this one as well, whenever he talks about some area of life, he begins by pointing us to the cross. When he speaks to married couples, he doesn't say, you guys should love and respect each other because it's just the right thing to do. Instead, he tells them, husbands, look at how Jesus has loved you. Look at how he loved you sacrificially. He loves you faithfully. He loved you even when you were not lovely. He loved you in a way that transforms you and makes you lovely. When Paul speaks to people who are struggling with bitterness towards other people, he doesn't just say, knock it off. Here's what he says. He says, consider the gospel. Consider that God in Christ forgave you. That you had sinned against him. You offended him. You hurt him. And yet he reached out to you. He befriended you. And he laid down his life for you. So consider what he's done for you and let it change your heart towards those who have hurt you so that you can honestly love people who have mistreated you, so that you can forgive them, so that you can do to them what Christ did for you. When he speaks to people who are falling into habitual sin, he points them to the gospel. He tells them what you are really looking for in that thing that you're doing, what you're really looking for is found in Jesus. And furthermore, in Christ, Jesus died to the, he, he died for you, and in him you have died to the person you used to be. And now you live a new life because God's spirit lives inside of you. And he will give you all the power that you need to have victory in every area of your life. And you could go on and on. You could talk about self-worth. You could talk about any number of things. Now think back with me to my friend Miklos. Think about how different things might have been if instead of giving him the law and giving him a bunch of rules as the tool to help him grow, what if we had given him the gospel? Because you remember, my friend, he loved the gospel. He was moved by the gospel. What if instead of a list of do's and don'ts, what if we had helped him to apply the gospel to every area of his life? And we had let the, let the Holy Spirit transform him from the inside. And then all of those outward changes that we wanted to see in him, they would have happened at the same time, but they would have happened as fruit. They would have happened coming forth from a transformed life. It would have been true change, and that would have lasted. You know, since that time and that experience, that has been my approach. I I have uh, taken this approach instead, and I've seen the difference that happens when there's true change worked in a person's heart by the Holy Spirit and in understanding of the gospel rather than by rules. So the gospel is a source of true transformation. It's not just what you need to become a Christian. It's also what you need to grow as a Christian. Christians need to hear the gospel just as much as non-Christians do. And the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. You never outgrow the gospel. You never move past the gospel. And our final point is this. The gospel is the source of true deliverance. Verses 13 and 14. He says, He, as Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. 
This word delivered, it speaks of someone being rescued, someone who's in captivity. It speaks of a jailbreak, really. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He set us free from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, as Christians, we may still be tempted by Satan, but we are not under his power anymore. We fight against him, but we are not his slaves. He is, he is not our king. He has no rights over us, and we do not obey him, and we will not listen to his temptations. When it says that God transferred us into his kingdom, the word transferred refers to how when one empire would conquer another, the population and the property of that conquered empire was transferred to the sovereignty of the conquering kingdom. And now everything we have, everything we are, belongs to him because he redeemed us. He paid our ransom. He purchased us from the slave market and set us free. The price for your freedom was the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The word translated forgiveness there in our final verse, it literally means in Greek, it means to send away. It speaks of the removal of our sins so that they're no longer a barrier which separates us from God. So because of the cross, we've been delivered from bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to the devil. And let me close by just saying this. The gospel is a bottomless well of treasures which are yours in Christ Jesus because of the cross. Transformation, redemption, forgiveness, deliverance, joy, and hope. But there's one thing that I must say at the end of this. In order for these things to be yours, in order for them to be true of you, see, they're not just true of people in general. In order for it to be true of you, you must receive the gospel. In order to receive the gospel, you must humble yourself before God and confess that you have fallen short, that you have sinned, and you must receive Jesus as your Savior. You must put your trust not in what you have done, but in what he has done for you. And I wonder if there aren't some of you here today who relate to that man, Charles T. Studd, who said that he went to a church for his entire life, but he had never really understood the gospel until that one day. Maybe you, you have put your faith in the gospel before, but today you're realizing that there are areas of your life where you need to apply the gospel in new ways in your life. Wherever you're at this morning, I encourage you, embrace the gospel today. Celebrate it and rejoice in what God has done for you. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for your grace shown to us in Jesus and what he did for us. And Lord, we pray that this would be true of us, that we would know the joy of the gospel. Lord, that when we think of Christianity, if we think of it as a burden, as a, as a heavy burden that's hard to do, Lord, would you help us to see that we haven't understood the gospel then? And Lord, would you help our joy to increase as we share it with others, as we share it together now, even as we sing this last song. Lord, we thank you for the transformation that you do within us because of the gospel. And we pray that you would do that transformation in our lives here today and as we go out from here as well. Would you help us to apply the gospel to every area of our lives and to be transformed into the image of Christ. Lord, thank you that you have delivered us. And I pray for anybody here who needs deliverance. They need deliverance or they need to be set free from the domain of darkness and brought into 
the kingdom of your precious son. Lord, for those of us who need to be set free in some area of our lives, Lord, we pray that you would do that work by your spirit and by your word within us. Lord, would you transform us from the inside out that we might bear fruit. We pray all these things and we are thankful for the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.